there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. And later in the pod, my conversation with our friend and former senior White House advisor, Valerie Jarrett, about her new book, Finding My Voice. Also, after my interview with Valerie, stick around at the end of the podcast for another excerpt of our weekly Pod Save America Q&A. have a few questions there. Uh, we've got a lot of news to get through today as well, from Trump's plan to make the next election about health care, to the House Democrats firing up those subpoena cannons to all the latest 2020 news. Also, the next installment in our Pod Save the Candidate series will be out on Friday. Tommy will be interviewing former HUD secretary and former San Antonio mayor Julian Castro right here in Los Angeles. Also, the paperback version of Ben Rhodes' book, The World As It Is, went on sale Tuesday, April 2nd. It is a fantastic book, one of my favorite Obama books. Go buy yourself Ben's book if you haven't already. Finally, we talked to you a few weeks ago about Organizing Core 2020, a program that will recruit and train a thousand field organizers who go to work in seven key 2020 battleground states for the Democratic ticket. Uh, the deadline to apply to that program is Monday, April 8th. So if you're a college junior who's interested, or if you just want to support the program and sponsor an organizer, please go to organizingcore2020.com. You can apply, you can donate. It is a great cause. We need to get field organizers in the field now so that when we have a Democratic nominee, there's going to be a staff in place and there's going to be a young, diverse field of organizers who know what they're doing. This is a really important program, so please check it out. All right, let's get to the news. Last week, Donald Trump promised that he was moving forward in courts and legislatively to replace the Affordable Care Act. This week, the president reversed himself and said that he was, quote, never planning a vote prior to the 2020 election on the wonderful health care package that some very talented people are now developing for me and the Republican Party. It will be on full display during the election as a much better and less expensive alternative to Obamacare. This will be a great campaign issue. Will it, Dan? Will campaigning on repealing the Affordable Care Act be a great campaign issue for Donald Trump? And why do you think he backed off his earlier promise to come up with an Obamacare replacement before the election? Well, these two questions are very connected. Uh, no, it will not be a good <laughs> issue. And we know that because it was a centerpiece of the 2012 election, which the Republicans lost. It was a centerpiece of the 2018 election, which the Republicans lost. And so were you to make it a centerpiece of the 2020 election, it probably does not bode well for Republicans. The reason it Trump backed off of it. And backed off is not the right word. He pretended he never said the original thing, which is always a favorite <laughs> Trump tactic, is that the Republicans had no interest in following Trump off this cliff, which is unusual for them, I know. But Mitch McConnell said <laughs> that, not that this was uh, impressive in its dickishness, but 
that he said he was be happy to look at any healthcare legislation that Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump could agree on. <laughs> that was a that was a that was a funny joke for Mitch McConnell. Mitch I mean, McConnell is not known for jokes. <laughs> so, I mean, my question about this is like, first of all, the idea that Donald Trump has been coming up with a health care plan or is going to come up with a health care plan or that Republicans are going to put forward a health care plan. I mean, we've heard this now for how many years? Like since 2010, they've been coming up with uh, Obamacare alternatives. Like, why do they think they can get away with continuing to say that there's going to be some magical alternative to Obamacare that basically does what people like about Obamacare, protects pre-existing conditions, um, all that good stuff, and that somehow we uh, we never see this. Well, it's impossible. That's the thing. It is an impossible policy problem to solve because you can't get rid of the parts of Obamacare that the Republicans hate uh, and pr- keep the parts that they want it that they profess to like but don't actually like protections for pre-existing conditions. You you have to. Why you have to get as many people into the pool as possible in order to make it affordable to protect people with existing conditions for insurance companies. So it's an impossible policy problem to solve. You know, I listened to you know you guys to talk about this on Monday before Trump backtrack off of this. And I think you're there's two elements of this. One is I do think he hears all the time that healthcare is the Republicans' biggest problem, Democrats' biggest advantage, and so he's sort of drawn to it like a moth to a flame. But then there's also he just has this politically self destructive instinct, which is. He insists on all, always following what seems like his best day with his worst day by, you know, his, I think as you said this on Monday, grabbing the third rail. And I think there was like, oh, I'm doing really well post Mueller report, according to all of my friends on Fox News. What can I do to mess that up? I'm going to I'm going to grab on to health care again. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing, too, is he does have a health care plan. Um, they laid it out in Trump's budget a few weeks ago. His administration did. I'm sure he doesn't know that or didn't read it. But the Congressional Budget Office, nonpartisan scorekeepers in Congress, uh, looked at the proposed policy that's in Trump's proposed budget right now. They estimated the plan would cause millions of people to lose coverage. It would give states the option to let insurers uh, return to discriminating against patients with pre-existing conditions. And it would allow states to give insurers the flexibility to decide what gets covered. Maternal care, uh, maternity care, um, you know, anything that they want. So... Basically, he does have a plan that he's proposing in his budget, and it's shit. <laughs> it's a bad plan. Um, so, like, how how excited are Republican politicians uh, to make this a central issue in 2020? I mean, didn't Trump basically end up with the worst of all options here? Because he brought up health care. He pretended that they were going to have a vote on it, you know, sometime in this, this year or early next year. And then he said, no, no, I'm going to punt this until after the election, thereby ensuring that the election itself will be about whether or not people want to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which we know they don't. I always get the sense that McConnell treats Trump like parents treat toddlers, which is he basically just promised him that Trump's like, I want health care. I want health care. I want health care. And McConnell's like, you can have health care after the election. We'll deal with it after the election, right? It's easier to do that. To, it's easier to delay gratification than to deny it. And Trump, being a toddler, decided to tell everyone that that's what the plan was, which, yes, it's the <laughs> worst of all worlds, which is to say that if the Republicans take the House and Trump wins re-election, that the exact immediate result of that is the repeal of health care. 
That's an argument yeah. that Democrats would make and Republicans would try to elide. But now Trump has embraced it. And so it is in some ways, if Democrats play their cards right here, a bit of a reprise of what McConnell very uh, deviously did with the Garland nomination, which is to say to hang out this vote over the election so that Republicans who were uncomfortable with Trump could yep. give themselves a rationale for voting for Trump, which is I don't like Trump. He seems terrible. He seems racist. He seems wholly unfit for this job. But if he wins, the next immediate result is we get to protect the balance of the court. And so this is the Obamacare version of the Garland effect on of 2016. And so but it will be up to Democrats to make this argument and keep this story relevant for a very long time, which is challenging considering the fact that collectively as Americans, we are unable to hold last week's impeachable fences in our heads for more than five minutes. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And um, I, I forget which story it was, but there was some focus group of like, you know, Obama, Trump voters. And um, one of the people said, you know, I, I really like Donald Trump, but I might not vote for him in 2020 just because I'm really worried that if I do, I'll lose my health care again. You know, like th there's there's sort of a a preconceived uh, notion from a lot of voters, rightly so, that Republicans and Donald Trump are just bad on health care and Democrats are good, however they feel about the parties and the individuals otherwise. And I think that's a strength that Democrats have. But as you say, they have to figure out how to capitalize on that strength. Um, and to that end, you know, somewhere in the Twitter stream of Trump's verbal diarrhea on health care was also uh, an attack on Democrats. Uh, he said, quote, Everybody agrees that Obamacare doesn't work. Premiums and deductibles are far too high. Really bad health care. Even the Dems want to replace it, but with Medicare for all, which would cause 180 million Americans to lose their beloved private health insurance. Dan, how worried should Democrats be about this line of attack and what can we do to counter it? I don't say this often about Trump, but this is not unclever, right? There is yeah. a there's sort of the health care debate in 2020 sort of operates around the following axes. There is the Trump plan to repeal the Affordable Care Act, either by lawsuit or by legislation. There is the Democratic plan to protect the ACA. There is a debate around what comes after the ACA, whether that is a Sanders-like Medicare for All plan, whether that is something like Medicare for America, which offers a buy-in, or something like a public option, right? Like, what is the next step beyond that? And then there is the Trump plan to cut Medicare, to uh, by nearly a trillion dollars to pay for his tax cut for corporations, Wall Street and the wealthy. And so how which part of that argument you can draw the most attention to is determines how Democrats will be successful. There is and if it is ACA versus no ACA, that is good for Democrats. If it is no ACA versus Medicare for all versus Medicare cuts, Democrats are going to have to argue the right point. I think personally that the Medicare cuts in the budget gave Democrats a huge advantage here, which is I think it should be easier to argue about giving Medicare to some people who don't have it than to cut Medicare from the people who do have it. And if Democrats can focus on that, then there's real chance for success here. But it is a lesson for Democrats that regardless of whether you're for a Sanders plan or something less, you know, quote unquote, lesser then Trump is going to say you're going to kick all 180 Amer million Americans off their health insurance. That is what Trump will do. It's what Fox will do. It's what the Koch brothers will do. That will be the outer bounds of the debate. And look, we should stipulate here that 
you know, 180 million Americans, the way, where he's getting that number from is that is the number of Americans who get health insurance through their employer right now. So uh, those Americans will not lose their health insurance under Bernie Sanders' plan. Their private insurance plan would go away, and instead they would be enrolled in Medicare. And by the way, not just the Medicare that we know of now, basically sort of a, a Medicare Plus version where there uh, aren't premiums and there aren't deductibles and there aren't copays. It's it's free health care. That's what it is. But it would require a transition away from the plans you have now into that plan. Now, uh, Medicare for All advocates would also say that, you know, if you get your insurance through your employer today, your employer can change your insurance plan at any time and often does. So it's not like when you have your current plan now, you are in control of what that plan is and when it changes, you are not your employers in control of that. Um, so there is an argument to be made there. But, you know, there's also an argument to be made if you're for one of the other Medicare for all plans that offers a slower transition or offers a choice that, um, okay, Donald Trump is proposing massive cuts to Medicare and to repeal health insurance for 20 million people. What Democrats are proposing is if you like the health care you have now, great. If you want to enroll in Medicare, like uh, seniors have been enrolled in Medicare for decades and decades, you can do that. No problem. If you're an employer that wants to, uh, you know, enroll your employees in Medicare, you can do that too. Uh, and, and no charge, you just enroll right into the program. Uh, if you don't want to do that, that's fine too. That seems to me like a pretty a pretty strong message and also a way to enroll a whole bunch of people who don't have health insurance or have health insurance that's not working for them into Medicare. I think that's great. I also think that there are some things that Democratic candidates can sort of agree on um, that would help win this argument over the long run, right? Which the first is every candidate can and should say every day on the trail that what this election about is health care, that it is about if Trump wins, the health, the Affordable Care Act is gone. We should repeat that every single day. It is to the benefit of every candidate who says it, and it's important to make sure that that sinks in over time. Let's use the long runway we have to the election to our advantage here by drilling it into the public consciousness. Second, I think we should also be highlighting Trump's plan to cut Medicare, right? That is the best argument against his argument about Medicare for all. But I also think Democrats should not demagogue each other's Medicare for all proposals. We should disagree about them. We should There should be a, a battle around the policy details. But if mo more moderate Democrats use right-wing talking points to describe uh, the Sanders plan or Medicare for America, I think that just does Trump a huge favor, right? Yeah. And for people on the left, if you characterizing someone's position for a more a slower transition period or a buy-in or whatever else is somehow being in the pocket of pharma or insurance companies also does Trump's business for them right like we we should have a good faith debate on the policy issues without making Republicans arguments against Democrats either that we are captive special interests or are trying to kick people off their health care or whatever that is. Let's have a real debate around the issues, and that will that will get us in a better place. But if we do Trump's dirty work for him in the primary, that's a huge problem. And again, this all happens to be true, um, not demagoguing each other's plans, right? Because on one end, you're talking about automatic enrollment of everyone in this country into a Medicare program that just takes place over a transition period of four years. On the other end, you're talking about giving people the choice to enroll in Medicare, uh, if they want. And then in the middle, which is where Medicare for America is, you're talking about automatically enrolling about half the folks 
who currently aren't in Medicare and giving the other half of the folks uh, a choice. So that's what it is. And it's, you know, they're different programs. There's benefits and drawbacks to each of them, but they are all about giving more people the ability to enroll in Medicare and to get health insurance and to get affordable health insurance. That's what these plans are about. But yeah, Democrats should be talking about this every fucking day. And, you know, it's funny. The people who have, um, like, the, the one person who gets this message right all the time is every time Elizabeth Warren talks about health care and talks about health care plans, she always makes sure to say, well, before we talk about all of our plans and all the different plans that Democrats have, let's just remember that Donald Trump and the Republicans are out there every day trying to take our health care away. She starts every single health care answer like that. And I think, you know, every other Democrat should probably do the same thing before you start talking about your plan. And when you go back to 2016, I think one of the things, the many reasons that led to the horrible result we got was also that there was this assumption that the Affordable Care Act was safe, right? We, it yes. survived multiple elections. It survived a Republican Congress and multiple challenges to the Supreme Court. So it was that is sort of the law of the land. And the salience of that issue was diminished in voters' minds. We have the opportunity to make sure it's at the top of the agenda this time because it is at the top of the agenda this time because the Affordable Care Act will be gone if Trump wins and the Republicans take the House. It's that simple. That is a reason for voting. That is a reason that even if you don't love the Democratic candidate that we have, that you can understand how it can affect your life and the lives of members of your community or your family or whatever. A hundred percent. And people people should know, by the way, too, it's not like – if, if Trump wins again, um, if Trump wins again, there is a very, very high likelihood that if he wins 270 electoral votes, it means he also had enough votes and Republicans had enough votes to take the House back. Because a lot of these House seats we took by very small margins in a very good year for Democrats. And so if it's a bad year for Democrats and Trump wins, it's very possible that Republicans win the House back. And then you're absolutely right. The Affordable Care Act goes away. That is what is on the line in 2020. All right. Let's talk about the most openly corrupt and incompetent administration of our lifetime and what a Democratic House is finally doing about it. Earlier this week, the House Oversight Committee issued subpoenas for information regarding the growing scandal over the Trump White House handing out top-secret security clearances to staffers who were determined to have security concerns by national security officials. The House Intelligence Committee is investigating potential illegal foreign donations to Trump's inaugural committee. The House Ways and Means Committee is now mobilizing to obtain Trump's tax returns from the IRS. And the House Judiciary Committee voted to subpoena the full, unredacted, totally exonerating Mueller report, which we learned last night from the New York Times and the Washington Post is apparently far more damaging to the president than was suggested by the four-page letter written by Trump's hand-picked attorney general. Surprise, surprise. According to Mueller's own team, the report contains, quote, alarming and significant evidence that the president of the United States obstructed justice. Ooh, boy, Dan, the subpoena cannons are out. The fuse is lit. Where did the subpoena Let's, cannon thing come from? I have no idea. I have no idea where it came from. I, I don't know if I saw it on Twitter. I don't know if Lovett said it. Who knows? It's, it's either some, some random person on Twitter or Lovett are the two most likely answers to that question. Yeah, that's where I get all my crazy things to say. Let's start with the House Oversight Committee, which is investigating the security clearance scandal, uh, as well as the administration's decision to add a citizenship question to the census. Forgot to mention that one. Um, Why do you think House Oversight, uh, chaired by Elijah Cummings, started with these particular issues? What do you think? I don't know why. And I think they're totally fine issues. I think, in general, Democrats have been... 
a little too wrapped around the optics axle about all of the stuff that we, you know, it really matters what order the letters go in or when we do things. And I think we're spending too much time worrying about how people interpret the requests for information than we are about how they're going to view the responses to those requests, to the actual information. I think these are totally good. The citizens, the citizenship question on the census is a huge problem, and it is a potentially massive undermining of democracy in a way that it's a political power play that will last a decade by denying representation to mostly Democratic-leaning communities all across the country. Um, so that's very that's a huge deal. The security clearance thing also be a huge deal. But still, we are in April here. And we've had the House for three months, and we are, I think we are moving slower than we need to be. And be, Democrats have to recognize that the underreach, if you will, about oversight of the Trump administration is of greater political peril than, quote-unquote, overreach. Yeah. So let, let's tick through some of these um, different issues, starting with the security clearance scandal. As mentioned earlier, a whistleblower from the White House Office of Personnel named Tricia Newbold, recently told the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee that the White House handed out top-secret clearances to at least 25 staffers, including Jared Kushner, who national security officials had already disqualified over security concerns they discovered during their background check, including, quote, foreign influence, conflicts of interest, concerning personnel conduct, financial problems, drug use, and criminal conduct. Drain that swamp, baby. Just drain it. Um, did you say how, Jared Kushner or did you say official one, as he is known in the memo? Oh, yeah. Official one. Official Directly one. related to his father-in-law, individual one. Individu- <laughs> he married into the one family. <laughs> how, uh, how big of a deal is this scandal? Um, and, are you, and are you persuaded by the official Republican response that actually only four or five of these security clearances had been denied for, quote, very serious reasons. <laughs> the rest of them were just sort of serious so reasons sad. not to give an individual with security concerns like, in their background. It, like, this whole thing security. is a little bit of a microcosm of Trump scandals in general, which is it's this huge problem that is beyond anything we've ever possibly seen. And the answer is no, actually, it's not as bad as you think. It's just normally one of the biggest scandals you've ever seen. And so the fact that it's if the original story was five White House officials had been granted security clearances over the objections of career professionals, it would be a massive scandal that would dominate the news for six months. Instead, that is the quote unquote exculpatory talking point from the Republicans. It, I mean, this is a giant deal and it should be the subject of massive amounts of investigation, both the process of of politicizing the security investigation process, but also what it is in Jared Kushner's background, a person who has access to the most closely held secrets in the, in the American intelligence community. What is it that caused such alarm? That is for someone who is the right hand of the president. Um, we, sh- we need to know that answer. And again, just so people know this, the reason that the FBI and national security officials and the white house do a background check on their employees and try to find out about, you know, things like drug use, debt, financial problems, personal conduct, all this stuff, is not because they want you to be an upstanding citizen, um, though they do, but they are worried that you will be subject to blackmail by foreign officials, foreign influence, foreign agents, who say to you, okay, well, you know all these secrets, 
well, I know something about how much debt you owe, or I hold the debt that you owe, or I know a secret about you. And unless you tell me the secrets that you have access to in the United States government, um, I will release the secrets that I have on you. That, that is the, one of the primary reasons why people conduct such thorough background checks and also why if during your background check you are honest about some of the issues you've had in your life, sometimes the FBI and the White House say, okay, well, at least you were honest about it on the security clearance, uh, on the security forms, and because you're honest and it's out there, then it's harder for them to blackmail you, so we'll, you know, we'll let you get the security clearance. Um, but the fact that there was a bunch of people who probably lied on their fucking SF-86, which is the form that you uh, fill out when you're trying to work and get a security clearance, and they had all this concerning stuff in their background, foreign influence, criminal conduct, etc. I mean, that clearly set off a bunch of flags in the, uh, in the national security apparatus, and they're pretty worried about it. And they didn't want to give those people access to the most sensitive information that the United States government holds. I mean, just yeah. to put a very fine point on it when it comes to Jared Kushner, Jared Kushner filled out his SF-86, and he quote-unquote forgot to include a meeting with Russians to explore a secret back channel that would allow Jared Kushner and the Trump administration to communicate with Russia outside of the eyes and ears of the U.S. law enforcement intelligence community. That slipped his mind when he was filling out his form where you list your contacts with foreign governments or foreign uh, foreigners. And so, yes, there are a red flag or two in his file, I imagine. And again, it's like Jared Kushner also has a lot of financial interests and a lot of financial interests abroad. And the question is, when Jared Kushner is trying to fucking, you know, uh, forge Middle East peace, which he's doing a great job on, or talk with the Saudis or talk with the Russians, you know, we, sh we have the every right to know whether he has any financial benefit to making certain deals or certain agreements with these foreign powers. Like the American people have the right to know that. That's why you go through a security clearance background check. Unfucking real so let's talk about the House Judiciary Committee finally voting to give its chairman, Jerry Nadler, the authority to subpoena Robert Mueller's full report. Uh, Nadler, who had previously given Attorney General William Barr until April 2nd to release the report, is now saying that he won't use the subpoena right away and will be giving Barr time to change his mind. Dan, what do you think the strategy behind this is? Why would you give Barr more time? I was originally I was firing, ready to fire off some hot tweets about this just out of pure frustration. And then I saw a tweet from Andy Wright, who uh, was an attorney in the, in the White House Counsel's Office when we were there working on these very issues. And he explained that the reason why the subpoena was authorized but not um, issued yet was – and this is his conjecture based on his experience working on both sides of these conversations, both in the White House and on oversight committees on the Hill – is that there is a there will be a legal battle over this, and it is important for the congressional committee to show that it did everything it possibly could, short of the subpoena, before they get to the subpoena. So that's why there was always a process of negotiation, of Got it. sort of potentially compromise on how these things are done. But you have to show that you tried to do everything before the subpoena, and if you just issue the subpoena right away without that pre that sort of preparation work, then it's likely that you're not going to win in court. So this is, Andy at least believes, and he's very, very smart about these things, that it is about ensuring that if this, if there were a legal challenge to this, as there probably will be, that Nadler's committee has the best chance to succeed. So I didn't send the tweet. You didn't? So no but, hot but it was gonna, But it was going to be good. It's going to be very angry. I'm sure Brian Boitler sent them anyway, because I know he's, uh, he's annoyed about this. <laughs> yes. 
So the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee voted against giving Nadler the power to subpoena the report, which is odd because every House Republican voted to make the report public just last month. Uh, Trump has also backtracked on his initial willingness to release the report that he says totally exonerates him. Very weird, huh, Dan? What could what could they possibly be worried about uh, in uh, in releasing this full report? What do you think is going on? It's I, I don't know. It seems uh, suspicious, and it is notable that Republicans, both pre, during, and post Trump, feel essentially no obligation to be burdened by the position they held three days ago. So it doesn't matter. It makes no difference to them that they said, release it last week, this week. They say, don't release it. Now they're going to be against the release of it. It's just sort of, it's all part of being Republican is you have to have the part of your brain that, uh, inc- that emits shame, uh, surgically removed prior to party acceptance. I mean, what do you, what do you think about the New York times and Washington post reports last night? Um, that Mueller's team has been telling people that they are quite annoyed and displeased with uh, William Barr's four-page letter uh, that tried to summarize their report, when in fact what we learned from these reports is that Mueller's team had already written summaries of their report in front of each section, and they wrote them believing that they would be released to the public almost immediately. And yet, William Barr did not do that. William Barr said that even their summaries, the Mueller's team summaries, somehow had... uh, grand jury information or classified information in the summaries. But it's sort of weird. Like, why would Mueller's team write a summary that they believed would be released to the public that contained classified information or grand jury information? Seems a little odd. I have a lot of thoughts on this. I really do. (laughs) I mean, first, let's just stipulate that we yelled at the press for writing the, you know, Mueller, you know, clouds clear over Trump, best day of Trump's life without ever having read the report and basing it on the four page summary of a man who did not believe the special counsel had a, the authority to investigate the president on questions like obstruction of justice. So we yelled at them for that. So let's not go completely the opposite direction, not having read the report. But the general take is no shit. Like we this was so obvious at the time that there was at least something more damaging to Trump than was in Barr's letter because Bob Mueller, who is a man very careful in the words that he says and writes, said he did not exonerate Trump on obstruction of justice. So that would lead you to believe that there's a high likelihood that there's a lot of evidence that suggests that, I don't know, Congress, for instance, would want to look at it and see and make their own judgment. And then there's this part of the letter that drives me insane, which is Barr essentially himself, not Mueller, clears Trump on obstruction. Yeah, And everyone was like, well, Trump's in the clear, despite the fact that that is Barr's opinion. It is Barr's position, his position of the Department of Justice, that Trump cannot be indicted for the president of the United States. So if you cannot charge Trump, then you cannot clear him. You are simply offering your opinion on the evidence, and your opinion means nothing. The only people who can render a fucking judgment on this is Congress, and Barr is currently denying Congress access to the evidence to make said judgment. So the other thing I would say about this is, hey, Mueller team, where were you last week? Like, why did it take you a week to let your concerns bubble to the top? You are free men and women now. You can speak. You can leak. Like, it would have been better to not let us get 
however many weeks it's been since this came out for the bar summary to sink into the public consciousness before you decide to express your concerns. And even now, I should say, the sourcing on the Post and the Times stories is not Mueller's team told the Times or told the Washington Post. There's an intermediary. It's Mueller's team has spoken to officials who have spoken to the Post and the Times. So they are very, they're clearly very nervous about leaking Mueller's team still. I mean, it, it, it very well might be that they thought, well, you know, Barr can have this four-page stupid letter come out, but this thing's going to Congress soon anyway. And then as the days tick by and Barr continues to withhold the report, they're starting to think, oh, fuck, maybe, uh, maybe this isn't getting to Congress as, as fast as we thought it would be. And now this guy is going to, uh, has, has already framed the narrative and our work is going to be seen as, you know, uh, our work is going to be buried, um, which seems like it's happening right now. And look, again, you said, let's not go overboard in the other direction. And I agree. Um, it, it seems unlikely that the report actually says, you know, Trump did conspire with the Russians and he did obstruct justice. Absolutely. Right. Like it, it's not like Barr, Barr's smart enough to know that he couldn't get away with too much of a cover up. But he's also smart enough to realize that if he frames that if he framed that letter in just the right way and, uh, you know, by omission, left out a whole bunch of really damaging information about Donald Trump and potential criminality and evidence of criminality, then by the time the report comes out, if he can just slow walk it long enough, the narrative about Trump being exonerated would already be set. And that once the report does come out and Democrats start screaming about it, which we will, if there's bad shit in there, um, then everyone will say, oh, just fucking sore losers, those Democrats, just complaining about this report. The president's already been exonerated. Why can't we just move on? That is very likely that Barr could have done that. Very likely. This is a very esoteric and painful sports reference, but do you remember in the playoffs last year when my Philadelphia 76ers were getting their ass kicked by your Boston Celtics? And Mm -hmm. in one of the games, the Sixers hit what they thought was the game-winning three-pointer as the clock was going out. And whoever runs the confetti cannon at Wells Fargo Arena, uh, fired off the confetti cannon, only to then find out it was a two-point shot and a three-point shot, which meant it was a tie, then the Sixers lost in overtime. Uh, That is how I feel about the exoneration parties that all of the Trump people had afterwards, which is like there was the hug between Kellyanne Conway and Sarah Huckabee Sanders. There was that nauseating New York Times story that we talked about a few weeks ago about how they had all these parties and celebratory dinner parties. Well, Maybe it was a little early uh, for those parties, is what I'm saying. A lot of confetti on the court right now, Dan. A lot of confetti. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet, which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high-coverage foundation, more popular than soft-launching your boyfriend, More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi. It's more popular than influencers. See you in there.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down. Not do what generations of New Englanders have done. Just stuff their feelings down. Maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No. You got to talk to someone. You got to work it out. Get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-S-A. All right, let's talk about some 2019 elections before we get to the 2020 elections. In a special election on Tuesday, Democrats in Pennsylvania flipped a state Senate district in suburban Pittsburgh that Donald Trump carried by six points in 2016. Pam Ivino won that seat uh, that opened up when the incumbent Republican left to run for Congress last year. Unfortunately, Democrats got much tougher news in Wisconsin, where a conservative state Supreme Court candidate declared victory in a race that could have a significant impact on that state's politics for years. Brian Hagedorn is a Koch Brothers-backed candidate who's called Planned Parenthood a, quote, wicked organization, the NAACP a, quote, disgrace to America, and founded a school that bans gay students and teachers. His liberal opponent, Judge Lisa Neubauer, still hasn't conceded because the race could be within the margin for a recount, but regardless of how things play out, she underperformed significantly in a state that's critical to the party's chances in 2020. Uh, Dan, first, before we get to what it means for 2020, what does this mean for Wisconsin uh, now and in the future? It's terrible. This this one was a real gut punch on a whole host of levels. Um, and And Tuesday night was a little bit of what it's been like to be a Democrat in the Trump era, which is really exciting good news followed by some sort of devastating bad news, like right back to back. And I was super excited about the Pennsylvania win. And then I started tracking the Wisconsin race and I saw Neubauer was up and then she wasn't. And I was waiting for Broward County to come in. And then I realized there was no Broward County. (laughs) And I recognize it's not fully done yet, but prospects don't look great. And it affects um, the ability of Democrats to take control of this court, which has been in the Wisconsin Supreme Court, has been a huge problem for progressive policies, access to the polls, union organizing, everything that Democrats care about. There's been this backstop at the at the Koch-funded Wisconsin Supreme Court, and we needed the seat to have a good chance to reverse the balance of that court in 2020 when you would hope and expect that there would be a more pro- a more democratic leaning electorate than there was in the midterms and in the special there's a, there's so people know there's a 4-3 conservative majority on the court right now this will make it 5-2 conservative majority which means that so there's another seat open in 2020 and it's the uh, the this, the election is on the day of the uh, Democratic primary in Wisconsin, so you have a better electorate. So p- what Democrats were hoping is win the one on Tuesday, win the one on 2020, and then they have a progressive majority in the Supreme Court. Now we won't have a chance to flip the Supreme Court until 2023. A liberal Supreme Court in Wisconsin, what it could have done is it could have upheld 
uh, Governor Evers' veto over whatever gerrymandered maps the legislature draws in 2021. So you have a conservative legislature in Wisconsin, and the reason it's conservative is because the state districts are very gerrymandered. And so they would come up with a new map in 2021. Evers would just say, fuck it, I'm going to veto that. It would go to the court, and if there was a liberal majority, then the liberal majority would probably uphold the veto. Now that probably won't happen, which means we will have a gerrymandered Wisconsin for quite some time, and that legislature has already tried to take power away from the Democratic governor. It is very, very bad. So what happened in this election? Like, what do you, what do you, what, why? People thought that Neubauer was going to win. There wasn't really a lot of polling, but she actually outspent her conservative counterpart, and uh, and yet, you know, he still uh, he still pulled it out. It's, I just every everything I was hoping to see that would make me feel better about what happened, regardless of the political environment where whereby this happened, make me feel better about that as opposed to the twenty twenty eight. Um, implications were so painful. It's like, first, Koch Brothers funded candidate must have dramatically outspent the Democrats. So I go look that up. The liberal spends $2 million more than the conservative in the sense that these are not quote unquote nonpartisan races. Um, then I was like, oh, maybe it was just Democratic, you know, turnout. We're not as good in special elections. And Neubauer performed very well relative to previous judicial races. The problem was turnout among the Republicans was through the roof. And yeah. there was not a equivalent surge among Democrats like the one we saw in 2018 to counteract that. And so it is very worrisome. And it is a reminder that what happens in a midterm is interesting, but not necessarily indicative of what's going to happen in 2020. And we have a lot of work to do if we are going to win Wisconsin in 2020 and all these other states like it, it there is a we have to presume through the roof conservative Trump based turnout and we're going to have to counteract that with through the roof uh, Democratic turnout and winning a good number of independents and, and up for grabs voters. I think I think that that's extremely important. I mean, like if, if this was in a situation where you know, Democrats just stayed home and they uh, and they, they they didn't care about the race and they didn't come out. You know, you could say, all right, we just boost our turnout to the levels that, you know, it was in the midterm. And that does not seem to be the case. It seems to be the case that, you know, Democrats turned out like they did in last April's special election, uh, Supreme Court seat election in Wisconsin. And Republicans just they came out the margins, um, the margins in the suburbs of Milwaukee. The Republican margins were huge. And um, we cannot um, we cannot you know, bet on the fact that any Trump voter, uh, Trump fan is going to stay home in 2020. We have to assume that they're all coming out and we have to get our base to turn out. But getting our base to turn out is absolutely necessary, but it is not sufficient. We have to win over independent voters. We have to win over swing voters. We cannot win the election without doing that. We cannot. And this is the important this is the important caveat. So people don't take this out of context on Twitter is that winning over swing voters is not a call for more centrist or quote unquote moderate ideas. That's not actually no. what we think. I actually think a compelling progressive populist policy platform and message is the best way to accomplish those two goals. But it is if we were in a popular election situation, you can we could win by simply turning out more Democrats than because there are more Democrats than there are Republicans in this country. But 
unfortunately, and it's really stupid, but we have an electoral college. And therefore, in these Midwestern states where the Democratic base is actually shrinking because young people are moving out and the state's population is getting older and whiter, uh, we have to do both. And that's just how it is. And you're right. I mean, I believe, too, a populist progressive economic message can win over these independent swing voters. Uh, it did win over those voters in 2018 because we made the election about health care. But that is the message that those voters have to hear from us. They have to hear about health care. They have to hear about how fucking J.P. Morgan just got $4 billion from Trump's tax cut. Like, those messages have to come from the mouths of Democratic politicians to the ears of voters. And there's a lot of shit in between that <laughs> that can can screw up the message um and they can't hear about democratic infighting and they can't hear about people complaining about this and that and all the fucking bullshit that we talk about every day they have to hear about health care about the economy about jobs about tax cuts they have to get that message and as democrats we have to do everything we can to make sure that message is directed to those voters and that it actually breaks through the noise very important a lot of people were tweeting about the need for less coverage of 2020 and more coverage of down-ballot races between now and 2020. What do you think about that? Sure. Like, yes, there needs to be much more coverage of down-ballot races. I'm like, I'm hesitant to that the answer is to yell at the press until they cover 2020 less for two reasons. One, 2020 is important. Like, who the Democrats pick to yeah. run against Trump is really, really important. And... We, it should be part of an important conversation, but also the answer to a political problem identified by Democrats cannot be some sort of change in how the press does their job. We have no control over that. So we're going to have to find a way, both as Democratic operatives, as people who have a podcast and a progressive media company you guys have, as Democratic voters, how can we find ways to drive the conversation around the things we care about and to shine a spotlight on the things that get less attention from the traditional media and funnel the activist energy into both winning in 2020, picking the right nominee, allowing people to be passionate about a Democratic primary candidate they care about and win in Wisconsin. I think we had in races like the one we just had in Wisconsin. So we have to spend some time thinking about that, but just like simply like yelling at the New York Times that they should cover Democratic presidential candidates less is, I think, not the right prescription to what is a very real problem. Yeah. I mean, the most important thing is, uh, you know, nominating a Democrat who can beat Trump in 2020. And uh, it's not going to matter much what happens down ballot if we don't get that right. <laughs> at the same time, it's absolutely correct that if all we do is figure out who to nominate and concentrate on the presidential election that, um, you know, we won't pay enough attention to the down ballot races. And then that Democratic president could have a real problem on their hands when they finally get into office and try to pass it. So both are important and we have to do both. Um, but I do think like the most the most important thing is whether we're talking about presidential level, whether we're talking about Congress, whether we're talking about the states, um, talking about the message we want to get through being positive as possible as opposed to trying to, you know, eat each other alive here um, is going to be very important to uh, to winning in 2020 up and down the ballot. So with that, the big piece of 2020 news you've probably been hearing a lot about lately is the first uh, quarter fundraising totals. Bernie Sanders is leading the field with $18.2 million raised since declaring his candidacy on February 19th. And that came from 525,000 individual donors and without holding any fundraisers. Kamala Harris is second. She raised $12 million from 138,000 donors in a little more than two months, 
and about half of her total came from online donations, the rest from holding fundraisers. Beto O'Rourke is in third with $9.4 million raised over 18 days from 218,000 individual contributions. Don't know the number of donors yet, but that's also all from online without holding any fundraisers. Pete Buttigieg is in fourth with $7 million raised from 158,000 donors over a little more than two months. And Elizabeth Warren's campaign said it reached its goal for the quarter, but hasn't yet announced its total, and we have not heard from the other major candidates. Dan, what's your reaction to these numbers, and did anything interesting pop out at you? All very good numbers, right? I think all of them uh, should feel very good about what they did, both in a short period of time, like Beto O'Rourke did, a more constrained period of time, like Bernie did. Kamala Harris's numbers are very good. I think we will have a sense of how good they are when we see everyone else's numbers. And it's probably somewhat telling that no one else has put their numbers out, right? You, If you think your numbers are great, you put them out at a time and they'll get the most coverage. And if you think they're yeah. not great, you wait till everyone else puts their less ideal numbers out and you try to be stuck in the same story with them. And so I'm curious as what the difference is between Pete Buttigieg's number and you know, a Kirsten Gillibrand or a Cory Booker, because that tells you something, right? And yeah. so that's one. Two, I think the thing that sticks out uh, in my mind is Bernie Sanders' cash on hand number, which he has $28 million cash on hand, which is a mind-boggling sum, which means not just that he's raised a bunch of money, but he has been able to spend it efficiently because they've done a bunch of big rallies. They've hired a lot of staff. Um, they've been spending money you know, on digital list building and stuff like that, but they've been doing it in a way in which they still have a lot of cash. And the question will be that theoretically and historically, the second quarter numbers are more interesting than the first because people get a huge bump on their first day. They um, have some set of supporters who can write max out checks, uh, like Kamala Harris raised 6 million of her 12 million offline, if I remember correctly. Um, and so how, but like how, what is her, how much more is her offline base? And can you sustain that level of fundraising success going forward? So that will be interesting, but all of these campaigns and candidates should be very pleased with their results. It is notable that Kamala, Bernie and, Beto all have heading into this race the largest email list by far. And they clearly benefited from that, from being smart enough to develop and nurture a very successful fundraising list heading into a presidential campaign. What do you think about? I saw some people talking about this. You know, uh, first quarter of 2007, Hillary Clinton, Clinton raises uh, $26 million. Barack Obama raises $25 million. John Edwards raises $14 million. Um, some people are saying, well, these numbers this time around aren't as impressive as those numbers back in 2007. Two reasons I guess they might not be as impressive that don't have to do with you know dampened enthusiasm or whatever else is, one, there's many more candidates in the field this time sort of splitting up the, the hall. And two, you know, Obama and Hillary did do a lot of those offline high-dollar fundraisers back in 07 and this time around you know, the emphasis is on online grassroots giving. What do you think about that? I think that's right. I also think, if you remember correctly, back in 07, there were a lot of people in the traditional Democratic donor bundler world who would give to both Obama and Clinton, right? They would oh, max yeah. out in primary dollars to both. 
Now there are so many candidates that it is much, I don't think you have people giving, a lot of people giving to multiple candidates, right? Like big donors. I'm not, I'm sure there are small dollar, small donors who have given 10, 20, $50 to a bunch of different candidates in the sense that you want to support them. Or in the case of Pete Buttigieg, he made a very clever play to get people to give to him, to get him into the debates, which he clearly had no trouble getting into because he had $7 million. Um, So there's, I think the, the there's less, and this is a good thing, I think, where there's less big money going around this time. And you have two of the three candidates who, as far as I understand it, have not held a single traditional fundraiser where, where you go to a you know, some chicken dinner and shake hands with rich people and take photos with rich people. They've done it basically all online or, you know, maybe direct mail, but not the sort of in-person fundraising that has been a hallmark of campaigns for ever, basically. And that's that's new, right? The fact that you basically have Bernie, Beto, and Elizabeth Warren, even though we don't have her total yet, have not held a single high dollar fundraiser yet. That like that doesn't usually happen, right? No, never, never happened. I, I don't know if Ber- what sort of fundraising Bernie did in 2016. Mm. Um, I imagine, yeah, maybe Bernie. I kind of remember right? there being like a, a small handful, but I mean, I yeah. know mo- all, the overwhelming amount of his money was online. The ways in which campaigns are being funded has changed dramatically and for the better, right? Like, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago about Biden, that he has this massive Rolodex of donors, and he's very worried about being outraised online by people like Bernie, Beto, and Kamala, who have larger lists. And I think that's great. The democratization of campaign funding is a step in the right direction towards a, a more equitable, better, cleaner system. I mean, obviously, we have to get to public financing and something better than what we have, but it is better yeah. than relying only on people who can write, you know, $2,000 checks to support your campaign. So at the risk of lighting our mentions on fire, I have a question. Bernie is leading the pack in fundraising, got half a million donors, polling at about 20 to 25% nationally in Iowa and in New Hampshire, while everyone else is in single or low double digits, uh, except for Joe Biden, very big exception, who hasn't yet entered the race. As of right now... Is Bernie Sanders the front runner? It has to be. Absolutely has to be. And yeah. his he has a very clear path through the early states in the sense that he almost won Iowa last time and crushed in New Hampshire. So he's got tremendous strength. And you, it, you cannot discount the idea that he could win both. And when you win the first two, it, you get a pretty big you know head of steam to head into the other races. He has clearly the money to compete all across the country and a very fired up, engaged donor base. And I say donor base, not just in terms of people giving them $5, but people showing up, engaged supporters showing up at rallies, volunteering, et cetera. So he would have to be at this current moment, the, you know, the front runner or a front runner, how you think about it, but he has tremendous strength and it should not be discounted by anyone. Yeah, he also has very, very high favorability ratings among Democratic voters. Um, he's more voters second choice than any other candidate right now, according to polls. You know, there was a lot of talk in 2016, and there a lot of truth to it, that he had problems with black voters. This time around, he's winning about 20 percent of the African-American vote in a far more divided field in 2016. Uh, and importantly, it's about the same amount of vote that he's winning overall. Um, so... Those are all the strengths. The counter argument, 
um, Nate Silver made yesterday. He said, Bernie is back down to polling around 20%. That's not that strong for someone with 100% name recognition. Uh, in my opinion, he's one of the four most likely people to win the nomination, but he's certainly not an odds-on favorite or really a traditional front-runner, especially given he trails Biden. What do you think about that, and what are the other obstacles you see to Bernie capturing the nomination? I mean, Nate is right, and that Bernie has, we believe, a very high floor on his support in a low ceiling. And I say low ceiling only because he is 100% name ID. So your room for growth is theoretically lesser than someone who has 30% name ID or 60% name ID in the sense that people, if they know you, they've theoretically made a decision about you. It's easier to win someone over who doesn't yet know you than to win someone over who knows you and has already decided to support someone else. So the counter argument to that counter argument is that in a multi-candidate field, his high floor is more than enough to win. The chat that he has two twin challenges, I think, uh, one of which every candidate has, which is polls, at least at this point, have indicated that Democrats want someone who can win. And can Bernie make a argument that a 70 something year old self-identified Democratic socialist from Vermont is the most electable Democrat? And there is he has an argument to make. He is making it already on the stump. It is. You know, they, his team has actually been making it since the 2016 election and the argument that he would have won over a lot of those uh, Obama Trump voters that uh, left the party to, uh, in 2016 because of his populist economic argument. And so he's got to win that argument. The second one is the same thing that that contributed to his defeat in 2016, which is he is doing well, as you point out, with African-American voters. But can he do well enough to not get blown out in the delegate race in a two-person race. And so this is an important yeah. thing to understand about how you become the nominee, which is Democratic delegates are allocated, allocated proportionally by congressional district. And in most cases, a lot of districts have even number delegates. And so in a 52-48 race or a 53-47 race, you're going to most likely in any individual district split those delegates 2-2. Right. right. But there are a lot of districts because of gerrymandering, uh, population trends, et cetera, that are heavily African-American. And what happened for Obama in 2008 and Hillary Clinton in 2016 is Hillary Clinton was winning those African-American districts by 30, 40, you know, some cases, 50 points. So she's taking most of the delegates there. So if Bernie can't do better than he did against one individual Democrat among African-American voters, he's going to run into a wall that will prevent him from getting a delegate lead in a two-person race. Now, in a multi-candidate field, that could be very different. But if Hillary Clinton or if a Democratic opponent of Bernie Sanders is, has a similar uh, lead among African-American voters, I don't think Bernie Sanders can win. And so that he's going to have to be able to do better. There are indications he can, and they seem to be focused on it, but that still remains the challenge um, when it comes to the actual work of getting the delegates you need to win the nomination. Yeah, I mean, I think he Bernie Sanders also, by the way, has probably the highest unfavorable ratings among Democrats of anyone in the field, even though he's got very good favorable ratings. Um, and this is this is this is also what comes with having nearly 100 percent name ID in the field. People have made up their minds about Bernie Sanders. And in the general election, when you pull general election voters, he's got one of the higher unfavorable ratings as well. So he has those challenges. And that is, I think, one reason why you see him. He's basically one of the only Democrats out there right now uh, who's running 
who's really focusing on this electability argument, which is interesting from the, you know, the sort of lefty socialist candidate is out there making the electability argument all the time. Um, he's talking about how many of his donors are registered Republicans, how many of his donors are registered independents. He's tweeting out polls of general election matchups against Trump that show him beating Trump by a few points. Like he's really trying to hammer home this electability message because I think the Sanders people realize that you know, there is an unfavorable ratings issue both among Democrats and among voters in the general electorate. Um, But I also think, by the way, that it's like it has been very underestimated or at least not talked about that much by pundits how so much of this race is this primary race could be dependent on the sheer composition of the number of candidates in the field, right? Like who wins? Bernie Sanders is hanging on to 20% in a 10-person field. He's doing a lot better than Bernie Sanders hanging on to 20% in a four-person field, right? That's very obvious, but it's just it, it's interesting that the number of candidates we that are actually competitive for this nomination really does matter because if you have Joe Biden jumping in the race and he's sitting there at 25%, around 25%, Bernie's sitting there around 25%, and if there was like another candidate who was getting all the rest of the votes, then, you know, both of them might have trouble winning. But instead, there's like four candidates, five candidates who are splitting up the rest of the vote. Therefore, you could see possibly like Bernie and Biden go in the distance. But again, it is very early. And sort of two more things about this. One, I understand exactly why Bernie Sanders is making in his campaign are making the electability argument so aggressively. I do think that electability is something that is better shown, not told, in the sense that right. you demonstrate electability in the things you do, not by telling everyone you're electable. I think that, yeah, that I agree with when that. your argument be- becomes electability, then you're not really making a true argument for yourself. It seems almost offensive in my view. And then the second thing is, to your point about the size of the field, the reason why – like there's been some comparison to the Trump – to the Republican 2016 field in the sense that you had all these candidates. They stayed into the end. That allowed Trump to succeed. But there is a difference in how Democrats and Republicans allocate delegates and pick their nominees. Republicans do winner take all. So Trump benefited from all these other people being in the race, taking 2%, 3% away from a Rubio or a Cruz or whoever else were the Trump alternative. Democrats, it's different in the sense that there is you have to reach a threshold to get delegates in a lot of places. And so there could be 18 people in the races, but if only two or three of them are polling at a decent number, then it's really only a three-person race as it becomes delegates. Uh, you know, in you think about 2008 when we were running in Iowa, there were, there were a lot of people in that race. Kucinich, Biden, Dodd, Richardson, all these people, but only Clinton – Obama and Edwards were able to get any real number of delegates out of Iowa. And so you have to like the question will be not how many people are in the race, but how many people are doing well enough to be in some sort of top tier to actually get delegates and where those delegates come from. Does that make sense? I'm going to get we're going to spend a lot of time next year being pretty nerdy about delegates, but I sort of uh, front ran that today. It's important. And look, that's why, you know, some of these campaigns, uh, I remember Kamala Harris's campaign touted this you know, are talking about like even hiring people who know delegate math, right? Like having someone in your campaign who knows the party, knows the party rules, knows the delegate math is extraordinarily important, um, even though it sounds like a nerdy math thing as uh, as this race goes on, because this becomes a, you know, this could become, 
you know, trench warfare for delegate by delegate in all these uh, in all these states, and it could go on for a long time. And so, knowing, like you said, which which congressional districts you can sort of score the extra couple delegates out of becomes of the utmost important as this race continues. Um, I, I loved the, as a small side here, I loved that staff release from Kamala's staff. It's like, here's our campaign manager. Here's our communications director. Here's some guy who was like Robert, quote unquote, delegate Bob Smith. <laughs> like, yeah. Just in case there was any question of who he was, his nickname included the word delegate in it, so we should hire him. And I'm sure he's yeah, great, no. but it it's it's a sense of savviness both that they hired that person and that they thought to make sure we knew that they hired that person. <laughs> uh, last question um, in, in terms of what we were just saying that showing electability uh, might be better than talking about it. Fox News announced this week it will host a town hall featuring Bernie Sanders on April 15th in Pennsylvania. Uh, the event's going to be moderated by Brett Baer and Martha McCallum, uh, and its focus will be about the economy and jobs. Why would Bernie do this, and is it a good idea? I presume the answer is electability, that he so can show he can go anywhere to make his argument and that his argument can be persuasive to Fox viewers, which is a proxy for rural white people who supported Trump. Um, I assume yep. that's the reason. I mean, my personal view is it is a huge strategic error for Democrats to grant an imprimatur of legitimacy on a Trump propaganda network that fuels political division and white nationalism in this country. I am 100% against doing that. I think it was right for Democrats not to do a debate there. I don't, frankly don't think Democrats should waste their time on it. A lot of people in the party disagree with me on this. Uh, Elizabeth Warren included, who has talked about who has done some stuff on Fox. Clearly, Bernie does. So there is a debate on this. The other side, there is another side to it who thinks it's the right thing to do to go into the lion's den and try to reach these Fox News viewers through Fox. I personally think those people are wrong, but you know, let the world decide. I mean, I do. Th- I, I I agree with you. I do think there's a slight difference between um, you know granting Fox News a Democratic debate, which, as we all know, I think is a fucking terrible idea. Going on a typical Fox show, signing up as a contributor for Fox News, I think all of that is garbage. I think there's a difference between like spending a couple minutes with Tucker Carlson, uh, if you're a Democratic candidate, or fucking Sean Hannity or any of those losers, um, and having a town hall where, um, you know, Brett Baer, who's still pretty conservative, ask you he's some a, questions. He's a six on the Trump loyalty scale, if I remember correctly. That's right. He's a six. Yeah, he's, he's, not, he's not quite a 10 yet. He's a six. Um, but having Brett Baer ask you some questions, but then, you know, getting to, getting to answer questions from a town hall, even if the town hall is filled with a lot of Republicans, and being able to get your message out to, you know, a bunch of viewers, most of whom are Trump fans that are never going to vote for you. But, yeah, there may be a few people who... Uh, voted for Trump and are like, eh, not so much about him in 2020. Maybe you can reach a few people. I still think generally I would, you know, like as you've said, the most precious resource on a campaign is time. I might use my time in other ways if I was on a campaign, but I see less harm in holding a Fox News town hall than doing the typical Fox News circuit, you know? I mean, I think like Pete Buttigieg went on Fox News Sunday, did an interview with Chris Wallace. You know, maybe that did him some good too. I don't know. It's it's I don't know if I would send my candidate on that, but I don't think it's quite the same as um, hosting a fucking Democratic debate on that network. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, I don't like they, those are uh, two 
uh, those are great, huge gradations of difference. Um, if I were to make the strategic argument for Bernie, why he would, why you would do this is every candidate is doing a CNN town hall and MSNBC town hall with Chris Hayes, which are getting good attention. I think they're great things that both those networks are doing to expose Democrats to their candidates to give them a chance to have a longer discussion about the issues. It's like obviously serves some candidates very well. Kamala Harris's was the most watched of all of them. Pete Buttigieg obviously got a chance to extend his Pot Safe America pump by doing said town hall. Um, <laughs> but by Bernie doing Fox, he's going to get more attention from it. It's going to get more coverage. I'm sure it's going to get a lot of eyeballs just because there's a spectacle of a Democrat on Fox. Yep. In the early years of Obama, we this is a trick we used to use. I was a huge advocate of it. I talk about this a lot in my book, but I came to realize it was a terrible mistake. But there is an argument, which is you want, you're not doing this just for the Fox viewers. You're doing this for an event that'll be covered by lots of press and lots of press will cover this because it has that lion's den atmosphere to it. And so like, that is like, that is why you, as a campaign, you may decide to allocate those, that those valuable resources to this. Right. Okay. All right. When we come back, we will have my interview with Valerie Jarrett, author of the brand new book, Finding My Voice. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high-coverage foundation. More popular than soft-launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi. It's more popular than influencers. See you in there. I'm Jessica Reeves, and I've been analyzing and reporting on extremism for the last 10 years, and I have the gray hair to prove it. Subscribe to our podcast, Extremely, for an always eye-opening look inside the daily work of exposing, fighting, and disrupting all facets of extremism. My co-host, Oren Siegel, and I explore this ever-changing landscape and bring you stories of people and places impacted by extremism, those who fight to protect our communities, and those who offer new perspectives. You can find Extremely wherever you listen to podcasts. On the pod today, former senior advisor to Barack Obama and the author of the new book, Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward, Valerie Jarrett. Well, hello there. It's so nice to have you here. I can't believe you're here and all this. I'm, I mean, I anyone know. who hasn't seen this studio, you got to really take a peek. It's like you, a real it's, thing. It's like a, you You guys are all grown up. <laughs> we are all grown <laughs> I up. I feel like I've known you since you were a young one. Sort of. And now sort you're, of all you grown even up. got like a touch of gray hair there. I know. There's too much oh, gray. God. It's it's really getting there now. That's okay. Um, so you've written this wonderful book. Um, the book actually starts in, you talk about your childhood in Iran, uh, where you were born and spent time as a kid. How did your childhood there shape your views of what it means to be an American and also of that country? Profoundly. Yeah. And I lived there till I was five, but then we went back pretty frequently until I graduated from high school. And when we were there, it was in the mid-50s, and we lived on a hospital compound with physicians, families from around the world. 
And it was at a time when, obviously, the United States had far better relationships with Iran than they do today. Right. And their health department was trying to recruit physicians to help share best practices. Back and forth, not a one-way street, but both ways. And my dad really couldn't find a job in the medical field at a teaching institution in the United States where he was making what his white counterparts were making. Hmm. And he and my mom were both a little crazy, I think. <laughs> and so they take off for this other part of the world. But what I learned there, uh, Fabs, is this. Number one, that I could walk into a room and find something in common with anyone in the room. I played with children where we didn't share language. We weren't from the same country. We worked it out. Yeah. You know, play is play with kids. And so I have that expectation. So that's one thing. The other thing I learned that people who haven't lived out of the United States don't fully appreciate is like how much we have going for us here in America. Yeah. Like my mom had to boil everything I drank. She had to peel everything I ate. I mean, the diseases that you could get there were deadly compared to what we have here. The poverty was such that we've never seen here in America. And so I think that it gives you a better appreciation for what we have, not to mention the civil liberties that right. we have here. And then the final thing I would say is I believe the United States is already the greatest country on earth. It's not the only country on earth. Yeah. <laughs> and we can actually learn a great deal outside right. of our shores. And I think that perspective on the world I gained at a very early age. And it's actually the first conversation I had with Barack Obama in 1991. Uh -huh. He talked about Indonesia. Right. And we had very similar experiences, and I think it shaped our outlook of both uh, domestic policy and foreign policy. Um, so you say that you had not really considered a career in government or politics. No. Um, when did that change, and why did it change? Well, it changed because I was miserable. Uh-huh. Nothing like a little good misery to get you that'll, motivated that'll to think about what am I going to do next. So, <laughs> And what was, were you doing at oh, the time? Lord, I was practicing law at a big law firm. Okay. I went from one big law firm to another in Chicago. I was on the 79th floor of what was then the Sears Tower, magnificent view of Lake Michigan, right. sailboats, the whole nine yards. And I would turn my back to the door and I would cry. And I would say, what in the world am I doing here? And at the same time, I was in the middle of a dreadful marriage. Mm -hmm. I had had um, my daughter, best thing I ever did. And I would stare at her. She's breaking news all the time she every time I turn on breaking CNN. Breaking news on <laughs> CNN. I'm so proud of her. And she also did a swirl in her career away from the private law firm. And I just would think, well, am I actually doing something in the course of the day that's going to make Laura proud of me? And the answer was a resounding no. I wasn't really good at my job. I hated those timesheets. I hated everything about it. And Harold Washington had just been reelected mayor of Chicago to his second term. And with that, he also now had control of the city council. Uh -huh. And I had a really good friend who'd left his law firm, gone to work for the city. And he said to me, what I'll never forget, he said, you'll feel a part of something bigger and much more important than yourself. Hmm. And you love Chicago, so why don't you want to do something to give back to Chicago? And it resonated with me. And so I take this big leap of faith. I leave behind the big paycheck and the fancy office. I walk into City Hall. My boss takes me to my office, which is really a cubicle. Yeah with a window facing the alley. <laughs> and I thought, you know, this is where I belong. Really? Yeah. I, th I felt like it was the right place to be. Now, you first met Michelle Obama, then Michelle Robinson, when you interviewed her for a job in Mayor Daley's office, right? Yes. What were your first impressions of Michelle and um, her husband? So my first impression of her when she walked in is she's obviously quite striking. She had on all black, her hair pulled back, barely any makeup, looks me right in the eye, shakes my hand, and sits down. And she saw my resume on her desk, uh -huh. and she never mentioned a thing that was in it. <laughs> and she told me her story about growing up on the south side of Chicago, her father, you know, working class family, yeah. his disability, uh, being a precinct captain, how that 
kind of piqued her interest in, in public service. And that she faced the same thing. She was bored to tears at her law firm, and she thought there must be something more for me in life than this. So I gave her a job on the spot. I was so blown over. I didn't have any authority to give her a job, but I just said, "You, we have to hire you." And so what was she, the job for? To be an assistant in the mayor's office. I was okay. deputy chief of staff, okay. and so we were staffing up the yep. mayor's uh, chief of staff's office. And so a few days later, I was talking to her, and I said, "Well, now that I have got permission to actually give you the job offer." What do you think? And she said, well, my fiancé doesn't think it's such a hot idea. So I said, well, who the hell is your fiancé, and why do we care what he thinks? <laughs> and she said, well, his name is Barack Obama, and he started his career as a community organizer on the south side of Chicago. And he's concerned, like, here I am going straight from a fancy law firm into the fire, no stop in the frying pan the way I had, because I'd practiced law for the city for four right. years before going to the mayor's office. And she said, he wants to know who's going to be looking out for me. So would you have dinner for dinner with the two of us? And I wisely said yes. <laughs> and that was a really important dinner. <laughs> and she did eventually come and work with me. And and you and Barack Obama became fast friends from yeah. that first dinner? The three of us became friends. Yeah. yeah. And had different things in common. Uh, Michelle's parents were very much like mine, you know, deeply in love, very supportive of their children, happily married. Mm-hmm. And uh, and what Barack and I shared was really this kind of unusual childhood that had taken right. us around the world and back, but led all three of us to the south side of Chicago. So fast forward to the 2008 campaign. Um, where I met you. That's right. That's where we met. When um, what what was the most difficult part of that campaign for you? And do you remember the moment when you thought, oh, "I think we could really win this." Like, I think he could really pull this out. Uh, I remember exactly that moment. So I think the I'll do the most difficult part first. Get that yeah. out of the way. So the most difficult part for me, I think, was Reverend Wright. Yeah. Because I considered it an existential threat to the campaign. Uh, it was so inconsistent with his persona and what I think had been so unifying beginning when he gave that speech at the convention back in 2004. And I knew he had to explain it and explain it in a way where people could understand and appreciate and hopefully learn a little bit in the process. But it was painful. And uh, we fretted about it, as you will remember, a great deal. Yeah. I I wonder how it was from your side of things, because from my side of things, it was, I remember seeing everything break on Friday. I remember like where I was, remember every second of that. And then I remember him doing all those cable appearances that Friday night. And it was also when he was, it was like the same day he was meeting the with the Ed board boards. on exactly. Resco. It was the same exact time. It was a bad time. couple of days. And then, um, and then I remember just waking up Saturday and getting on the senior staff call and Axe saying, oh, he wants to do this speech on race and he wants to do it by Tuesday. <laughs> Did your like, life flash before your yes. very eyes? Yeah, exactly. And I was yelling at everyone. And then I remember, you know, Axe was like, well, let's try to work on it ourselves and we'll go to the office and the two of us sat there and I was like, we can't do this. He's got to do it. And then I remember talking to uh, Obama that Saturday night for like an hour. And he sort of, you know, he's like, oh, I have stream of consciousness thoughts about what the speech should say. And then he had like one, one A, two, <laughs> two B. But then I remember he said, you know, I have a great story I'm thinking about ending it with that Valerie. Ashley. Yeah. That, Ashley that Valerie told me. So how was that from your end? What, well, it was the perfect fit. And he had used um, that story once before, as you'll remember, when he spoke at Ebenezer Baptist Church right. on Martin Luther King's birthday. And it was a story of one of his campaign workers from South Carolina who'd grown up in Florida, a young white woman who uh, told a story about her mother having cancer and 
ending up in bankruptcy because she couldn't pay her bills and didn't have adequate insurance, and how uh, she'd hoped that Barack Obama, whose mother had a similar um, illness, would really fight for people like her mom and his mom. And so she tells this story in this room, and we're going around the room, and everybody was supposed to tell their story, so I would address my comments to meet their interests. And we get about two-thirds of the way around, and this older black guy said, I don't need to hear from you. I'm here because of Ashley. And it was such the perfect symbolism of what the campaign was all about. People who would never ordinarily meet coming together and developing these bonds of trust, which is why I think our field organizer effort was so important because Mm. those people in the room knew Ashley. I was a stranger. I may have been a senior advisor to the campaign, but they were going with someone they trusted. And so the symbolism of that, I think, was really important. Um, And so then when did you think, okay, we might win this? Oh, so I thought... I thought we would win it, and I actually never looked back other than that deep gulp in New Hampshire <laughs> when he won Iowa, because I thought Iowa yeah. was a stretch. And if Iowa, a state that's like you know 90-plus percent white, would go for this African-American named Barack Hussein Obama uh, in the midst of uh, really the Hillary Clinton phenomenon— right. I thought that's pretty darn good, right? Yeah. And so I figured if he could do that, then it would really signal to the rest of the country that he was credible hmm. and electable. Yeah. And I will say I was stunned, as I know we were with New Hampshire. We were all in that hotel together going, what the heck's going I on know. here? But I remember, and I think you were there. We got in the elevator, and um, Michelle Obama was very unhappy. And he looked at her and he said, you know, it can't be too easy. Right. It can't be too easy. And I thought, yeah, good luck, buddy. That's And it was <laughs> it not. Need to, and it was not, and then but. seven months of primary later. <laughs> yeah, but out of that came, yes, we can. Right. And right. the enthusiasm later that night when he spoke to our volunteers and then the next day in Boston. Yeah. It actually was a shot in the arm and it was a kick in the pants, which I think we needed. Right. Um, so we get to the White House. We're in the middle of two wars, potentially a second Great Depression, crises every day. And... I don't know if you felt this, but suddenly, you know, we're in these rooms with all of these very experienced experts, right, who've been dealing with this stuff for a while. Were you ever reluctant to speak up and make your voice heard? And how did you find the confidence to basically say, you know, I deserve to be here and my opinion deserves to be heard? Well, you're right. We had the smartest people he could find. And I think he'd be the first to say going into that crisis, he knew he needed to surround himself by the best and the brightest, but I also knew that he was interested in hearing from a variety of different perspectives. Mm. So I'm not an economist. Yeah. You know, I have run a business, though, and I know how important certainty is to the business community. Right, right. And I know how important it was that if we thought that the economic crisis was going to have a bad impact on business, that people who have always been suffering and disinvested in were going to suffer even more so. And so thinking of them and keeping them top and center, I knew it was important to him. And so I think tone starts at the top, mm. and I think he set the kind of tone where all voices are important. And I think also obviously having a pre-existing relationship with him right. gave me a comfort level. But as you'll remember, there was a time when the women were shying back. And I think, look, as you said, Two wars, economic crisis, with a lot going on. And then there was a lot of testosterone flowing. Right. <laughs> and I often wonder whether the guys were feeling slightly intimidated by it as, well, as well, but it did have more of an impact on the women. And he seized on that. And what he said to them, I think, is an important message, which is if you're not speaking up, then 
it's not about you. It's about your ideas and what your ideas add to the equation. And even if I don't agree with you, you're going to make me think about it from a perspective I didn't have before. Yeah. And so him reinforcing that for, I think, all of us was helpful. And I never tried to profess to be you know, an expert in a field that I'm not an expert in. But I also know that it's not all about you know, research and uh, evidence. And it's, some of it's about how you feel. Yeah. And I remember he was great at going around the room and making sure that every single person in the room, he'd say, oh, what do you think? And he would go to someone in the back, what do you think? I think that's that law professor in him. Right. And he could also <laughs> read the room. So I can remember so many times you'd see a young person and they were like, they'd be on the edge of their seat and they wanted to say something, but they didn't feel it. And he would just lean in. Yeah. And then he would give them positive reinforcement. And it sent a message to everybody. This is a safe place. And I, will, I he being the president, will make better decisions if they are informed by a whole variety of views. Yeah. And I think that also added to the integrity of the decision-making process. So even if we didn't start out agreeing with where he ended up, mm. you felt good about the process. The process you felt yeah. like your voice was heard. Um, what do you say to people who argue, you know, President Obama didn't didn't do enough, right? Like we didn't we didn't get the public option, or no one went to jail for the for the banking crisis, or we didn't do enough on housing, knowing that when we were there. We were trying our hardest, but how, how do you talk to people about that? You know that? what? Look, first of all, he did not let perfect be the enemy of the good. Yeah. Seven presidents before him had tried to get health care passed and failed. Yeah. And we simply didn't have the votes for the public option. Right. And he's a pragmatist. And so his view is, all right, yeah, sure, we might want that. But if we can't get it done, do we do nothing and just kind of hold our breaths to get what we want? And let 20 million people go without health care and people not be covered for pre-existing conditions and all the other benefits? Or do we say... Let's make progress where we can and come back and fight another day. And I think he was very good at seeing the art of the possible, pushing the envelope, because there were people who said, forget about it altogether, if you'll remember, right? right? Yeah, when, when uh, Scott Brown won that seat. We're like, oh, well, it's all over. And there were people who said, just do children. or And he was determined to try to push for as much as he could possibly get. And I think that's important. Now, for people who say, and I and I get, yeah, nobody went to prison. I get, why didn't you get immigration reform done? Why mm. didn't you get criminal justice reform done? Why couldn't you keep guns out of the wrong hands? And what I say is, look, we had eight years and we ran full speed ahead. And I think never lost sight of why we were there. He never put his short-term political interests ahead of what he thought was good for our country, yeah. which is why he was willing to use political capital to get the health care bill passed. Right. And so you just say, look... When you're in those jobs, you know that people are going to always wish you could have done more. We wish we could have done more. But I feel very confident that we did the best we could. It was um, a tough deck. It was a very tough deck. So I had uh, Cory Booker on the other day, and we were debating whether to get rid of the filibuster. And because he had previously said that, you know, he thought it was important and we should keep it. And my view is I came into that White House believing you know, Barack Obama's message that we could work together. We could work with the other side. And then eight years of watching the, the Republic, never broke. The fever never broke. <laughs> I know. And I wonder how you think about that now and what you think, like, does the next president have the ability to work with the Republican Party? Or how do you deal, how do you deal with this Republican Party going forward? Like, how, I mean, Well, this Republican Party is like nothing I've ever seen before. I know Republicans who don't recognize their own party. It's right. been hijacked in a sense. I think the only way we deal with the current situation is by everybody 
realizing their responsibility to engage and vote. And not just vote, but be informed with your vote. Hold people accountable. Don't just fall in love with a candidate, Mm -hmm. but really find out what's their medal? What are they made of? Uh, Will they blink? Will they waver? Will they forget why they're there? And I think it was important that we got caught trying. Because Barack Obama did come in and say, I am going to reach across the aisle, and I'm going to try. And look at all the amendments we made to the Affordable Care Act, trying to get one Republican to vote for it. And they wouldn't. But I think it was important for his inclusive vision of America to show that he wasn't just the president of the people who elected him. He was the president of the entire country. And I think that still resonates with people. Right. The majority of the people. The problem is so many of them who feel that way don't vote. Right. And so a big part of what I want to do over the next, well, several years, not just the presidential election, is to help people understand why they have to engage. Our democracy is only going to be as good as we demand that it be. And that if we don't, then the special interests will come out. The only reason why we haven't done anything to have universal background checks pass through Congress is because the NRA put so much money on the table. Right. And unless members of Congress feel as much heat from their constituents as they feel benefit coming from special interest groups like the NRA, then they're going to sit on their hands. Right. And in states where people have galvanized and organized, you've seen change. And we need to bring that change to Washington. What, uh, what specific qualities and character traits are you looking for in the next president? Well, I uh, believe, still believe, that... We need a president that governs for all of America, that has a message that's an inclusive message where we appreciate the richness of our diversity and we don't try to focus on our differences but focus on what we have in common and that we're looking to have a better understanding of each other. The way our country has always improved as that arc of the moral universe has moved is when we've understood each other better. If you look what happened around rights for the LGBTQ community, something I'm very proud of on his watch, And I remember the day that marriage equality uh, was announced by the Supreme Court, and he gave a speech, and he said, you know, moments like this feel like a thunderbolt, but we have to remember the decades of hard work that went into it. And so I'm looking for a candidate who appreciates the fact that it is hard work. It's not a popularity contest. You do need to win. But after you win, you have to do what you think is right. And it is hard to do what is unpopular once you're president. And it is tempting to just play to your base right? because you get the positive reinforcement from your base. Yeah. But that's not the job. So I'm looking for somebody who, um, yes, can inspire and motivate people to want to participate in their democracy, but who is also prepared to make some very tough calls. And as you know, President Obama used to always joke, like, how come I don't get the easy decisions coming across my desk? And we're like, oh, no, we took care of those. We just bring you the stuff where we're like, woo. Hard things are hard. Hard, as Zach said, hard (laughs) Hard things things are are really hard. (laughs) And it takes a certain internal constitution to deal with that in a way – where your temperament is steady. And it, it's a lot harder to not react in anger mm. um, than it is to pop off. And that I'm looking for somebody who has some self-control and a temperament and an inclusive nature and who's going to really try to make sure that our country is a land of opportunity for all Americans. And I don't see that happening right now. Yeah. Um, obviously, you write in the book about finding your own voice. Uh, what advice would you give to candidates running about finding their own voice. You know what? Be authentic. Yeah. Be don't worry about looking at every single thing and how it poll tests before you. You leadership is about moving people, not just mirroring back what you're hearing, particularly not mirroring back what you're hearing uh which is 
not aspirational. Mm. I mean, that's kind of easy to meet people where they are if they're in the doldrums. Yeah. Your your goal should be to lift them up and inspire them to move our country forward. And so I, I my advice, and I've, I've met with several of the folks who are running, and I've said two things to them. Number one, be authentic to yourself and be prepared for people to criticize some of what they learn about you. Mm. But even those who are critical, and certainly Barack Obama got this, there were a lot of people who said, I might disagree with you, but I like you. I feel like I know you. I respect you. Yeah. Um, you are authentic. So you've got to be that. And then the other thing I'd say is, I have said is, keep your eye on the prize. Do not beat each other up so much in the primary mm-hmm. that we go into the general election bloodied. And one of the advantages of so many of them being cohorts in the Senate is that they're actually friends. Yeah. And I think that that has a, a natural... Um, uh, creates a barrier to trying to to beat each other up, but I think we have to really keep our eye on the prize, and that's that's the general election. Uh, you think you'd ever run for office? I don't think so. No, no. I've been tempted in the past. Yeah. Uh, I haven't said very often, but when um, Mayor Daley was trying to decide whether to run for a third term, mm-hmm. if he hadn't run, I'm pretty sure I would have. Mm. I didn't want to run against him. I love him. He was my boss, and I couldn't have beat him. Right. But I might have run for mayor there. And when I first met Barack Obama. People often say, like, what was your impression of him 28 years ago? And I thought, my, he's so talented. Maybe just maybe one day he'll be mayor of Chicago. (laughs) That was like the ceiling I could ever have imagined for him. So that was a goal. And then I toyed ever so briefly with throwing my name in the hat to take his place when he Mm. left the Senate. But at this stage of my life, really what I enjoy is helping the next generation. Mm. And I've had a lot of experience both at the state, local and federal level, uh, both in politics and, more importantly, in public service. And so if I can help people who are thinking of running for office get inspired to to do so and help them with the benefit of these years of experience, I find that really exciting. And it doesn't have to just be the youngest of the people. I mean, I was very active in uh, Stacey Abrams' campaign and, and also Andrew Gillum. I think they're just superstars. Uh, Lauren Underwood from my hometown of, well, the Chicago area. Yeah, we just area. had her here last week. She Naperville. Here. Isn't she a rock star? Fantastic, yeah. Oh, I'm so proud she was in our administration as well. And HHS. Ronnie Cho was running her campaign. The whole, the whole the crew. The whole thing just <laughs> made perfectly good sense. Yeah. And so that that just makes me really happy. Running for office, I don't think, is in my cards. But I learned never say never because I also said I would never, ever, under any circumstances, work for the federal government. And then and here then, we are. And there we are. So. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining. My pleasure. Thanks uh, for the, having me on. The book is Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward. Please go buy it. It's a fantastic read. Valerie, thanks for coming by. Thanks a lot. And congratulations to everybody around the studio. <laughs> you rock. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, as promised, an excerpt of our weekly live Q&A. This week it was Tommy and me, and as always, the questions were asked by Priyanka Arabindi of What A Day fame, and uh, you can check out our live stream Q&A every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific. You can go to youtube.com slash crookedmedia and check it out. Smash that subscribe button, ask us some questions, we'll give you some answers. Our first question here is about debates ongoing between Democrats over policy implementations. There's healthcare, environmental policy, et cetera. How do we as voters and non-experts evaluate who has or what is the best plan for going forward? It's a great question. <laughs> Vox.com. Yeah, yep, right. honestly. But, but, you know, honestly, 
read stories yeah. in at places like Vox and Sarah you know Cliff. the New York Times will do stuff, Washington Post, BuzzFeed. There's there, all kinds of places will have good deep dives into what a lot of these policies mean. I would say as a voter, you sort of evaluate two different things. One is, do I like this policy? Do I feel like this is a good idea? Like after you know figuring out what, what it is and understanding it. And then I think the second big thing is, what is the likelihood that this can be achieved? And, what is, and, and has this candidate offered a path to achieve this policy and to pass this policy, right? And so, you know, there's different ways of doing that. Some of these candidates will say, I can achieve this policy goal through an executive order, so I won't even need Congress. Well, that's great. That'll happen pretty fast as soon as that person gets elected president. Others will, you know, most of the policies they'll put forward have to be passed through Congress. And then you have to ask yourself, how is this policy going to be passed through Congress? Um, if Democrats control it, like, will we be able to get Republican votes? If not, will we be able to do enough? You know, like, John, do you think the filibuster could be an issue? <laughs> and so where this is leading me, no, it's like if, you, if you're out there saying, I'm going to pass Medicare for all, and, but you also are not um, willing to eliminate the filibuster, for example, that's Bernie Sanders' position, um, you're not really going to pass Medicare for all. You know, and also, Cory Booker in his conversation with you seemed to suggest he would get rid of the filibuster, but then I feel like he might have kind of backtracked later. He's going back and forth. He's a little worried about it. Now, and, and, and in fairness to it's these fair. candidates, because okay. I've been tough on all of them on the filibuster thing, a lot of this is up to the Senate Democrats, right? The president can't order the Senate to get rid of the filibuster. So talk to Chuck Schumer. Right. Talk to the rest of the Senate Democrats, um, because, you know, if they don't get rid of it, then... Uh, and nothing's happening. But Mitch McConnell, I think, is on the floor today. Yeah, it just happened. Shrinking the amount of time that we're that you're asked to deliberate a judge from 30 hours to two so that he can just ram as many conservative judges through Senate as possible, right? Yep, that's correct. Um, so uh, they seem to be cool with making some of these changes. Yes. Oh, and then the other thing that you should use to evaluate these policies is um, does the candidate have a plan to finance these policies, to pay for them? Because I think we would all agree that Democrats have probably cared too much about deficits over the last uh, several decades. And so we shouldn't worry about, you know, if we are investing in an important policy, whether it's teacher pay, whether it's health care, and uh, we think we're going to get a good return on that investment, it's fine for the deficit to go up a little bit. But there's a point where <laughs> where you actually have to finance something and yep. you have to pay for it. You can't just increase the deficit forever. Uh, we, could, we could be in some trouble there. So figure out how they're going to pay for it. Some of them are going to pay for it with raising taxes on the wealthy. Some of them aren't going to tell you how they're going to pay for it. But I think that's another way to evaluate these policies. Yeah. Um, this next question is from Nathan. He wants to know what changes you would make to the format of primary debates. His idea is to get rid of the audience so candidates don't have to play for applause or pull questions directly from campaigns, publish platforms rather than horse race. What do you guys think would make primary debates more effective, especially looking at ours where it's like the first one I think is billed to 20 candidates. Mm -hmm. It's like kind of going to be crazy. I'd say Nathan's idea about getting rid of the audience is a great one. I love one. that. I love that idea, Playing Nathan. to the applause is just... Nathan for DNC chair. <laughs> because it's not just that the candidates play to the audience, but then if you're watching, just naturally... If, a, if you see a lot of applause for one candidate and another one doesn't get as much applause, then you think, oh, the other candidate did better. But all they might have done is just like... They packed the fucking thing. Yeah, or they might have like delivered a, a dumb zinger about Donald Trump and that doesn't fucking matter, you know? I think the, having the moderators be uh, policy experts, activists even, could improve upon um, some of these debates because... Sometimes some some journalists do a fantastic job at these debates, I should say. But sometimes, you know, the questions tend toward 
Um, what are you going to do now that you only raised two million in Q1? Yeah, <laughs> you know, and they're and they're more horse racy questions. Ask questions. It's good when moderators encourage debate among the candidates, but it would be great if they tried to do that on policy to the greatest extent possible, and not like I don't know, horse racy personality, stuff or personal attacks, or yeah, yeah. whatever. Watch the latter stage uh, Hillary Clinton Obama debates to see what not to do, and then we'll just reverse it. Just the the debate in South Carolina between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and John Edwards was so nasty, and none of us, and I'm sure our friends in the Clinton campaign would have said the same thing, left that debate feeling good about what happened. What was the one that <laughs> spawned the YouTube sensation, Ya yeah, Gibson, Ya? Yeah. Oh, that was, was that Char- Charlie Gibson? <laughs> that was Charlie Gibson and Stephanopoulos and, and Clinton. I'm going to put that in the stream. <laughs> really that was funny. also a nasty one. Nasty debates in 2008. All right, this is in the fun section, but it's a little, it's like also kind of serious. Okay. Where do you guys go to get your news? How do you stay informed? Twitter. <laughs> That's why I'm on, t- as much as I hate Twitter, I'm addicted to it because it is the best, I think it's the best way to get news up to the minute every single second. There's that, there's Nuzzle, which is actually a better way of still using Twitter. Nuzzle, I've talked about this before, gives you the top news stories that are being shared by most of your followers. But you don't have to have the scrolling anger of Twitter. You can just see the stories listed out. I like that out. for what a day. And then, of course, our Slack channel about news. Yeah, twenty-four hours the, a day. Uh, everyone's just putting in news stories on yeah, our guys, Slack channel. Sorry, here for can't community. join that Slack channel. But. <laughs> yeah, we can't let you join that. So, I personally, or Crooked Media, pays for the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. I think we pay for the New Yorker. We pay for Boston Globe online because we're, uh, we're massholes yeah. so yeah i mean we try to try to scan the uh the best articles <laughs> on a weekly basis i don't know it's great the i don't like long for the days of newspapers because i never was like a real newspaper reader but it was helpful sometimes to get a sense of proportion when you would like have the new york times you see what's on the front page and you flip open and that's the international section first so there's a bunch of shit you wouldn't necessarily have read and then you get the politics and you get the domestic and then opinion I think it's a good way to do it. And the place where I don't get my news anymore since I've moved to Los Angeles is television. No, I never watch TV. We have televisions in the office. We and Unless there's a big event, we rarely have them on. Unless there's someone funny who's like going to show up on TV and do an interview. Yeah, we yeah, watch right. like the CNN town halls. Yeah, we do that. Well, I was thinking Amoroso. That was a while ago. Amoroso. <laughs> we, uh, we airplay various PowerPoints. <laughs> That's what we used the and TV the Ariana Grande for. music video. Remember Ariana that? Grande, yeah. yeah, we did. That was a big, uh, big event in our office. <laughs> a brief aside for all the people out there: the showrunner for uh, Veep tweeted about how in the first episode they accidentally re- land in the wrong city, and he said, "Does this story sound familiar?" Barack Obama. We borrowed a few. Yes, that happened. Remember that event? Were you yep. there for that? Someone Were you just on asked on Twitter. Do I you? was not on the plane. I heard about it because I was in Chicago. But as soon as I saw Veep on Sunday, I thought that. That was based on us. I was sitting in Cedar Rapids. In the middle oh, it was of you. You were there. Fucking snowstorm. And you're we like, oh, he's wheels down. And then Marvin and Reggie get off the plane with Obama and they look around and they're like, where is everybody? And they landed in Des Moines. How the hell does that happen? I don't know how that <laughs> happens. That would be a. That happened today. Whew. Gaff. Twitter. End all gaffs. Big gaff. <laughs> the person wouldn't recover. <laughs> be the end of the campaign. Thank you to Valerie Jarrett for joining us today, and we will see you next week. Bye, everyone.
As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. I'm Oren Siegel, and I've been fighting extremism, anti-Semitism, and hate for more than 20 years. You should subscribe to our podcast, Extremely, to get a unique perspective on the daily work and the people who have dedicated their lives to exposing, fighting, and disrupting extremism, anti-Semitism, and all forms of hate. We bring you the stories of people and communities not only impacted by hate, but who offer new perspectives and ways to push back. You can find Extremely wherever you listen to podcasts.